We'll turn with me to the book of Philippians today. Um, we always know it's a joy-filled story in the book of Philippians, and certainly that is the case today as we look at Paul comparing and contrasting some things in order to help us to know Jesus. Now, as you turn there to Philippians chapter 3, let me ask you a question. How many of you have a dog? Raise your hand. So I'd say you all are a dog church. How many of you have a cat? Okay, so a few cat people in the room as well. Um, you know, I, I want to love animals. I, I grew up on a farm, and I, I had cows by the time I was pretty young, and uh, I think by the time I was seven, I had ten cows of my own, and uh, moved and walked among dogs and pigs and sheep and horses and everything else, and so <clears throat> just love the idea of having a pet. But I remember early on thinking, dogs don't like me. Um, I, I remember uh, being a five-year-old. My dad was going to look at a riding lawnmower, <clears throat> and uh, we pulled up to the man's house, and we got to the front door. There was this huge dog that was looking eyeball to eyeball with me when he opened the door, and it was a great big German shepherd with a really deep bark. And he said, oh, don't worry, let me put, put her up. And so he put her up, and I was really relieved that he put her up because, you know, the growl and the tone and the eyes and the intensity and the teeth and all the other things kind of scared the little boy and me. <clears throat> Walked around the back to look at the little uh, Massey Ferguson tractor, and I remember the sound of a sliding door open and the voice of a woman. That was the last thing I remember before I had two paws on my back pounding me into the ground, and I'm sure it was just a playful dog, but it didn't seem like play or fun to me. Now, it wasn't long after that I was riding my bicycle around my neighborhood in Bowen Forest in Cleveland, Tennessee. I had my little Free Spirit 10-speed from Sears, you know, you know the kind? It was lime green. It was really a nice bike. And I'd speed around the neighborhood, and there was this one little girl. I thought she was really cute. Her name was Tiffany. And she was friends with my sister, and I always wanted Tiffany's attention because I, did I tell you, I thought she was cute. Anyway, so I'm riding my bike around the neighborhood, and Tiffany had a little dog. And, and the thought of this little dog was, was really cute, quaint, sweet to me, but it was a, a little spitz. I put my hand down to try to pet Tiffany's dog and see Tiffany in the yard, and Tiffany's dog bit me. Well, fast forward a few years, and I'm going to my first dance. Men, do you remember going to your first dance, asking that girl to go with you, and being real nervous? Would she say yes, or would she say no? Well, little Serena said yes. Her, her mom was a nurse at the local doctor's office that our family used, and I had a little eye for her when I was in ninth grade, and I was going to my first dance, so I mustered up all the courage that was in my nine, nine, uh, ninth grade body, and I reached out and said, um, would you go to the homecoming dance with me? Now, I was really embarrassed because I couldn't drive. My sister and her boyfriend had to drive us. So I had to go pick us up. And, and so we went out there to Serena's house, and I come to the front door. I ring the doorbell, and I have a flashback in that moment because Serena has a spitz. Well, that dog comes out the door, and guess what that dog did? It just all but gnawed my leg off. As a matter of fact, my pants were hanging torn around my ankle as I went to the dance because Serena's dog bit me. Now, you can imagine how hard it's been to be a dog person all these years after all those childhood experiences, can't you? Now, understand this. We're coming to a passage today 
where Paul is going to talk about the dogs. Now, in the New Testament, do you think Paul talks positively or negatively about the dogs? Positively or negatively? Negatively. Do you know how many times dogs are talked about in the New Testament? Nine. Do you know how many times those are negative? That's right, nine. So it's not exactly the most favorable story. And of course, in our day and time, dogs are beloved, almost a part of the family. I, I, I go into the pet supermarket in Peachtree City, and you know, it's $175 for a week's worth of food for your favorite dog. And you just kind of scratch your head and go, wow, we're not just pet fans, we're pet fanatics when it comes to our world. So when we hear this passage of Scripture, which is called a warning passage, why do you think it's called a warning passage? That's right, you're, you, you got it, because there's a warning contained within it. As a matter of fact, it's the most warning passage in the New Testament. It has three warnings. Beware. Now, now have you ever seen a sign that says, beware of dog on it? Of course. And you know what? There's probably a dog that is ferocious behind that fence. Well, Paul knows that there is a dangerous, dirty, and derogatory dog behind the fence that he is putting up in Philippians chapter 3, and he is telling us, be really careful with this dog related to these three warnings. Now, understand this. I know which state I am in. Do you know which state you're in? What, what state is this? Georgia. And it's what season in Georgia right now? Football season in Georgia. And how many of you are Georgia Bulldog fans? Okay, I think we got a few more Georgia Bulldog fans and we've got um, dog fans in the room. And I understand that. Now, I do know that you can be objective. Because if you can elect a chairman of deacons who is a Tennessee ball in the home state of the Georgia Bulldogs, then you do have the possibility of approaching the truth that is recorded here for us. But understand this, these dogs are dogs of warning for us. And, and if you want to give a category to it, I would say it's the category of the dogs of religion. And what Paul is going to put in front of us is something much better. He, he says, listen, not everyone that speaks in spiritual terms should be listened to. Not every religious thought should be entertained. Just because we're doing something doesn't mean we're doing the right thing. Be careful how human traditions and even spiritual feelings or preferences may drive you. But instead, I want to give you something other than religion. I want to give you a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul does it in perhaps some of the most personalized terms in all of the Bible. Probably this passage... And the passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about his sufferings are probably the two most personalized portions of Scripture when it comes to what Paul wrote in the Bible for us. And he knew the danger, the danger of feeding flesh. He knew the danger of tickling ears. He knew the danger of affirming a message that wasn't helpful. And he comes back and says, let me give you something other than religion let me give you a relationship with Jesus. <clears throat> it's the consistent standard he puts in front of us. It's the authentic filter for everything in our Christian life. It's the truest of true 
uh, messages. It is the power of God presented to us. It is what Paul in the book of Philippians says is able to build healthy, holy, happy followers of Jesus who live in unity and on mission together in churches that are holy, healthy, and happy. But oh, is it so hard to get over all of the things we have to be cautious about in order to get to the one thing that Paul says has to be true. And that is that we know Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know Him in all of the fullness of His uh, revelation in Scripture? Do you know all of the facets and dimensions of the work that He desires to do in our life? Have you experienced the temptation of distractions? Do you know the spiritual dangers of religion? Do you know how it is to be disappointed by things that you might have thought were a part of Christ and His kingdom, but only to realize there is constantly the need for the singular filtering and focus upon knowing Jesus Christ? And that's what today's message is about. So would you take your Bible and stand with me as I read aloud these verses of Scripture in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 and through verse 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law... A Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He may be seated this morning. Paul reminds the Philippian Christians of the dangers of religion and the delights of a relationship. 
And the context, of course, Paul is unpacking his conversation with Epaphroditus, who has come from Philippi. He has brought an offering, and obviously sitting in one of the Roman dungeons and prisons, they are discussing the current climate and current realities within the church at Philippi. And one of those discussions is obviously about the back and forth related to the place of the law in the life of the believer. And maybe the point of that discussion is about how much is my faith about my external practice of my religion and how much of my faith in Christ is about the inward righteousness of the life that we are to have in Christ. And it is very interesting and almost poetic how the Apostle Paul comes to write this word with so many word plays and so much uh, variety in the language that he uses, the dialectical patterns that are present, the assonance, and, and all of the word uniquenesses that are found here. And even in the outline of the Apostle Paul's thoughts, you will see much of that back and forth that the Apostle Paul expresses in his own testimony, but also that he understands that other believers struggle with as well. Let me give you the four main points in a single slide that gives you an outline of the ideas. But the Apostle Paul in verses 1 and 2 talks to us about the dangers of religion. And then second, in verse 3, he talks to us about a threefold demonstration of true Christianity. And then he gets into some wordplay and some word bantering and some one-upmanship. And he begins to talk about his own disappointments with religion before concluding with what I would call the ultimate crescendo in the book of Philippians where he talks about the delights of knowing Christ. I want to follow this outline for us today as we understand what the Bible is teaching us. As we understand religion and tradition cannot satisfy you nor will it secure you eternally, but what you are really looking for, whether in the lostness of sin or in the lostness of religion, you are looking for Jesus Christ. That's what we're really looking for. So let's begin by considering the dangers of religion. Would you look at verses 1 and 2 with me? He says finally. He doesn't mean finally. He's like a preacher that doesn't know when to stop, right? He's just introducing a new point. He says, brothers and sisters, he's not just talking to the men here, he's talking to all of the church. But he's doing it in terms of those who are professing faith in Jesus Christ. He remembers the theme of the book of Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. That is the theme of the book of Philippians, that there is a joy in having a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And Philippians 1.6 reminds us of that theme that was introduced at the beginning of the book, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. But here's the first danger, the danger of false teachers. In a very intense style and with intense words in the original language that mean you cannot miss what is being said here, he says, I am going to warn you again. Probably he had warned them in person, but now he is warning them in writing. And of course, re repetition is a great teacher. 
And he says, it's no trouble. He's using an idiom here to say, I don't want you to think that you're a problem to me, but I want you to know this is a problem for human beings. And I want you to be safeguarded. Now, this is a fascinating word because you think of safeguarding. Hey, Paul's safeguarding these individual people like they are prisoners. That's not what he's saying at all. The way he uses the words and the words that he actually chooses to use communicate this instead. You are a treasure and precious to God. And therefore, God desires to guard that deposit that has been made in you. And I want to look out for you. And so what does he say? He said there's three layers of fencing here that says, beware of the dogs. Look at verse 2, beware of the dogs. This is that wild, mangy dog. And here he talks about the message they speak. Beware of the message that they speak because they are speaking a message that is not the reference of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying really in his words, if you could read it in the original language and have full understanding, their message has bite and don't get bit by their message. But can I say it is an easy message to be bit by because it does appeal to our flesh. It appeals to my flesh. And I'm not unusual company here because in Paul and Peter's apostolic showdown, it appealed to Peter's flesh too. When Paul confronted him and and said, hey, you're getting into a worldly pattern of religion and not an authentic pattern of the gospel, you're depending upon something other than Jesus alone for the message that you preach. Paul goes on and says, these are evil workers. Here he is focusing upon the activity of what they do. They are laboring hard. No dispute, they're working hard in religious fields. But the work that they are doing is harmful, not helpful. And Jesus would use this same idea in Luke chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, to talk about false teachers and bad leaders we don't like to admit that that happens within our religious context, but it does. And he says to them, you are shutting people out of the kingdom and you are causing them to be bad followers of Jesus. That should cause every one of us, it certainly causes me, to be sober when I teach a lesson or do ministry with a person or consider giving leadership to the church now, we get a little bit more beyond the messenger to the message with the third, beware of the dog warning sign, beware of the false circumcision. Here he identifies the group, probably the early Judaizers. Early Judaizers were people that took the Christian message and blended together the law and said, no, 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 this is how you have to do it. You, you've got to look good on the outside. You've got to let other people see how, how good this looks. But of course, Paul's message is a message now that is being recounted again in our generation that the gospel plus something is what you need for salvation. But understand this, church, that the gospel plus anything is nothing. That is the message of Galatians. The entire book of Galatians tells us the gospel plus anything literally equals nothing. But the gospel plus nothing, that's what equals everything and where the power of God is found. 
Now, Paul expounds upon this external religious appearance when he talks about the circumcision. You see, the Jews viewed circumcision as essential. It was the sign of man's sinfulness. In other words, it was right to point out our sinfulness, the pervasiveness of our sinfulness, how sinfulness works through all of our heart. And yet what had happened was that there had been an externalizing of sin instead of an internalizing of sin. So the symbol that was intended to help the Jewish people be reminded of the sin of the heart and sin being cut away, now all of a sudden was just an external outward symbol that did not have the effect on the heart. And I think what we have to look at throughout human history and throughout our spiritual history is the fact of how easy it is to let the external substitute itself for the internal. Paul says that this was his trouble. When he confesses his challenge in Romans chapter 7 and then in Romans chapter 8, he tells us he would not have known what sin was if it were not for the law, but he thought he was living up to the letter of the law, but kept finding the law powerless to do what God's power alone could do. And so he cried out to God, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And his conclusion was just a one-fold gospel. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. But this has been the way it is from the earliest of days with Abraham and with Moses and with the children of Israel as they entered the promised land and with the judges and with the prophets and with the priests and with the kings. It is the constant reminder that, that our faith becomes about the external instead of about the internal. And Jesus would come and pound that message with religious people saying, these people are very near me with their mouth, but they are very far from me with their hearts. Now, as if this is enough of discouragement to motivate us, I would say that it's not just all sticks behind us, but there are carrots in front of us. And if you look in verse 3, you will see the first of the carrots. And I will tell you, the Apostle Paul has more carrots than he does sticks. He gives us the warning but then he goes on to say, let me tell you what a demonstration of true Christianity is about. And he compacts all of this into verse 3. It's, it's as if verse 3 is just filled with such beautiful and intense and hope-filled language that it's almost like it's pressed down, shaken together, and just overflowing with beauty and love and, and all the hope that we could ever hope to have related to our faith. He says, but now we are the true circumcision. In other words, what but the Jews may have missed in their religious activity. Now the Christians are recovering again in what it means to be continually repentant of heart. What it is to have a heart that is filled with hope and joy and love for God. What it is to have a soul that is converted and a faith that is alive and obedient. And our, our repentance shows itself, as the Bible calls it, in the fruit of repentance. And he alludes to three things in this one verse talking to us about the demonstration of true Christianity. First of all, he talks about our worship. He, he says of our, our worship that it is in the Spirit of God. The word worship here is the word laturo, which we get the word liturgy from. And you may think of an Episcopalian church or some high church, but make no mistake, we as Baptists have our, our liturgy as well. 
And he says here of this liturgy that it is our spiritual act of service. And he pushes us, quite honestly, beyond what happens to us inside the house of God. He's not discounting that at all. But he says what happens to us inside the house of God eventually impacts us as we live outside the walls of God. One of the things I love in what I do now is working with pastors from a variety of denominations. And I heard one particular Pentecostal pastor say it this way as we were talking about this scripture and this idea. He said, you know, I think what I hear it saying is, is it doesn't matter how high we jump in church. It matters how straight we walk once we get out of church. And I said, pastor, you may be on to something there. In other words, what happens here whether it's singing or hymns or songs or praise songs or prayer or fellowship or the preaching of God's Word, eventually it changes and transforms us when we are outside of the walls. You see, the true measure of the impact of our worship is not just how we worship, but how we live after we worship. Notice the second indicator of true circumcision or of the benefits of true Christianity we glory in Christ. The word glory is sometimes hard for people to understand. A lot of people will think of glory in terms of doxi, the, the doxology, giving glory to God. But the idea is, here is different than that. Kuuchamai, uh, which is boasting about the thing that we are most proud of. Now let me ask you, what are you, what are you most proud of in your life? What do you boast the most about? Maybe your children, your grandchildren, maybe your home or your job or your extended family or the blessings or accomplishment that the Lord has given to you. But the Bible is very careful with this concept of giving glory and boasting. And the Apostle Paul would teach us not to boast in anything except in the Lord. Jeremiah 9.24, Paul would pick up that idea in 1 Corinthians 1.31 and say, let him who boasts, boast only in the Lord. And so the question becomes, what do you boast most about? Maybe one of the questions for the church family is, okay, as a church, what do you boast most about? And the Bible would say that our boasting should be about who? Who should it be about? Jesus. Look at the final thing that he says. We put no confidence in the flesh. Confidence is an alternate word for faith. He doesn't say put no faith in the flesh. He uses actually a word that, that says no confidence, or it does mean faith, but it's always used negatively of the flesh. Don't put confidence in your sarke, in your flesh. This is what Paul would talk about in Romans chapter 7 when he says, my flesh is weak, my spirit wants to do the right thing, but I just cannot make my flesh do it. And, and he says here, I don't don't have reason. I, I can't do what I want to do. I cannot muster up the strength. And so the, the confidence is set aside in ourself, and our confidence is placed in Jesus. And Paul says this is what a true Christian really does. Now, it gets fun at this point because the Apostle Paul kind of goes raw at this point. He rolls up his sleeves, and, and you'll see what he says he says it sarcastically. Do you see it there in verse 3? Though I myself have reason for such confidence. What? 
So, so Paul's really rolling up his sleeves, and he says, now let me list for you, point three, the disappointments of religion. The disappointments of religion. And he recounts his spiritual accomplishments, his confidence in the flesh. N- notice verse five, he goes back and talks about circumcision. Because the question was about the law and circumcision. That's what the Jerusalem council was meeting about. It was the burning issue of the time. It was what the church was talking about. Do we have to keep the law in addition to believing in Christ? Of course, the Jerusalem council said no. And we established salvation by grace through faith. But Paul backs up and says, okay, you want to play this game? Then let's play this game. Let's talk about a spiritual heritage. But he concludes this, that a spiritual heritage will not get you into heaven, nor will it satisfy you spiritually. He he appeals to these four things. I'm an eighth day, or I was circumcised on the eighth day. The only day that somebody really circumcised should be circumcised. I'm an eighth day, or my family fulfilled the law. And by the way, I am of the nation of Israel. I can trace my heritage back in my family line all the way back to Moses, and even further back to Abraham, I am truly an Israelite, whereas many of you are not. And by the way, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I am of the aristocracy. The first king, King Saul, came out of the Benjaminite tribe, and therefore I am of importance. I am the aristocracy of Israel. And by the way, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Some of you are part-time Hebrews. You don't live up to what I live up to. And then Paul's going to confess what he believed in and trusted in, he set aside to find Jesus. He's not done, though. Spiritual heritage is one thing, and listen, having a spiritual heritage is a wonderful thing, but it's a great thing to steward, a great thing to understand, and a great thing to sort out for yourself. But notice that he goes from spiritual heritage to morality. Verse 5, second phrase, as to the law of Pharisee, Now, what does that mean? He says, well, when it came to keeping the law, I was a part of keeping the law with the most strict sect. Remember how the Pharisees came about. They were a separatist group that when the Jewish nation was being indoctrinated with Hellenist ideas, the Pharisees pulled themselves out and said, no, 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 we're going to keep the law. And so Paul says, we scathingly denounced Those who compromised, we are going to adhere to the strictest interpretation of the law. And they delineated it down to just the nuances of the Christian faith, or the Jewish faith. Jesus would come and address this issue himself. And he would say, what? Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Remember that from the Sermon on the Mount? And people just were aghast. Oh, my goodness. How in the world can anybody enter into heaven if you have to have a a religious righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees? They do everything. And Jesus says, not more of the same, a different kind altogether. A faith righteousness, Jesus would come and teach us. And of course, the external righteousness looks good at meets up to peer pressure, and you feel like you're appearing good in the eyes of others. It's the rich young ruler syndrome. I, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'm keeping the law. I'm doing everything. But what was his heart holding on to? Things no one else could see. Listen again, morality is a 
wonderful thing, but Paul says it will not save you, nor will it satisfy you. And by the way, just as an aside, the way biblical morality happens is first we realize that we are morally bankrupt as to the law, and that's what brings us to Jesus in search of salvation. And then in salvation, we realize that Jesus lives up to the level of morality that God requires perfection for us. And once we trust in Him, His Spirit empowers us to progressively live a moral life in Christ, not by our strength and for our glory, but for Christ's glory and by the strength of the Spirit of God. And I would just again refer you to Romans 7 and 8 for that. So it's not spiritual heritage, nor is it morality. Look at the next phrase, verse 6, as to zeal, the persecutor of the church. Sincerity will not get you into heaven. Did, was anyone more sincere than Paul was? He went to foreign lands to seek out Christian people to persecute them. No one was more zealous than him. Many Americans think, hey, if you just are zealous about being right with God, that's all that's required. Not what the Bible says. That's why in the beginning of the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9, he talks about real knowledge and spirit-revealed discernment because it does matter the truth that you embody. Look at the next phrase. He, he says, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Now, if, if we said that today, if we just had the audacity to say, okay, everybody that thinks you're perfect, raise your hand. Would anybody dare to do that? Paul said, I would. I was faultless. On the outside, I was faultless. I mean, just the sheer thought of that is torturous to our consideration of how other people would see us in this day and time. And yet the Apostle Paul recognizes what the heart is capable of. Martin Luther would write these words, the worst heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man... Think about that, the founder of the Reformation, the worst heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man was the idea that somehow he could make himself good enough to deserve to live with the holy God. You see, again, he says to us that good works will not satisfy you nor get you into heaven. What will then? We'll look at verses 8, 9, and 10. He tells us. He says to us, but whatever was gained to me and all these things that I've just listed for you, I now count them as lost. More than that, I consider them lost to the surpassing value. And here's the phrase of knowing Christ. This is what it's really all about. Look at verse 8. I count these things as rubbish. Now think about that. Spiritual heritage, morality, keeping the law, um, sincerity, zealousness. But all of that I set aside. And he doesn't just say, I set them aside. He said, no, I throw them in the rubbish bin. I mean, that has to catch our attention, doesn't it? Why? Uh, look at the last phrase of verse 8. So that I may gain Christ. And what is gaining Christ? Well, verse 9 tells us it is a faith righteousness that I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. Here's what a faith righteousness is, that God has created people, and we are ultimately, as His creation, accountable to Him. 
We tried all our ways to earn our way to Him, only to discover we could not, but He revealed Himself, entered into our world in the person of Jesus Christ, died our death, raised again victorious over sin and death, and now by faith is available to be received by us, and we live our life for Christ on the other side of our salvation. But before we come to faith in Christ, it is all and only about a faith righteousness, which is why the book of Romans says... If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, just three verses later, he says, you will be saved. Today, if you're here and you need to know Christ, I would say to you, just call upon the Lord, believing in him, and the Bible says you will be saved. And that's the message for you this morning. And if you're here today and you are a follower of Christ and have trusted in Jesus, let me say it to you this way. The great trap is the trap of Peter and Galatians. Don't go back and fall into the trap of thinking it's something other than knowing Christ through a faith righteousness. I love how Warren Wearsby he says this, like most religious people today, Paul had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him into heaven. It was not bad things that kept Paul away from Jesus. It was good things he had to lose his religion to find his salvation. Boy, that penetrates my religious heart. Those are sobering words. But he closes with his own application. I don't have to do application today because in verses 10 and 11, Paul gives us five. Would you close with me here? Notice what he says, that I may know him. What are the benefits of a relationship with Jesus Christ? What are the delights that we get to enjoy? Knowing and being known. You know, that's one of the greatest needs of humanity is to be known and to know. If you're here with your spouse today, you know that is the, the deep reality of what marriage is about. But in an even deeper way, it is about knowing God and being known by Him. Number two, there is a power to live the life God has created you to live. You know, the idea of living your best life now for a decade now has been a very cachet concept. But, but the reason why it's a cachet concept is people want to be able to live the life. But the question is, how do they do it? Well, the Bible says here, through the power of his resurrection. And here's what Paul's saying. That the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that was deposited in you when you came to faith in Christ. And now that resurrection power lives in you. And you can live the Christ life that Jesus wants you to live. Look at the third thing that he says, that there is a meaningful relationship to enjoy. You have fellowship in his sufferings. I don't know about you, but when I get together with friends, it's one of the greatest joys that I have in life. We just laugh and we enjoy and we tell stories and we relate. And the Bible says that we share that with the God who made us. And even in our sufferings, no matter how good, in the good times it's easy. Paul implies that in what he doesn't say. But what he states overtly is that any faith that leaves you unprepared for the sufferings of a false faith deserves to be abandoned because genuine faith and genuine fellowship can be tested by your sufferings, but false faith should be lost, but true faith will not let you down. Number four, there's a person that you get to emulate, being conformed to his death. 
you're conformed to Christ. And finally, there's a place where you can go and somehow to attain the resurrection from among the dead. <laughs> there's a place called heaven. See, there's, there's not just heaven waiting for you. There's all five of these beautiful things that Paul unpacks for you. Um, when my daughter moved home, she brought her cat with her. Um, I didn't think of myself as a cat person, and, and Zam, this is Zam on the screen, kind of confirmed this because for the last two months, Zam has been the most finicky, distant, difficult cat for me to relate to that you could ever imagine. I don't take from this picture I'm a cat person, not a dog person. That's not true at all. Like I said, I love all animals. I've just been surprised by this cat. So for months, nothing to do with me. Run away when I walked in a room, hiss at me a little bit, hide from me, swat at me, just all sorts of unpleasantness, right? The other night I was coming back from spending some time with your vision team, and I was late, I hadn't eaten, so I just kissed Wendy goodnight, tucked the kids in, went into the kitchen and popped open some tuna fish. Well, guess who appeared at my feet? Closest Zam had ever been. A little tuna fish kind of separated itself from the bowl I was mixing it in. So I thought, well, I'll just pick that up and put that down there. What do you think Zam did? Oh, man. Ate that right up. Kind of sat there and looked at me. I could only imagine processing what was going on. Next thing I know, I heard this little roar of a purr. And next thing I know, I, I just felt Zam brush up against my leg. Wasn't long until it just wrapped his tail around my leg and, you know, just kind of moved gently beside me. Sat down over in front of the television, pick up the news. Guess who popped up in my lap as I was eating? You bet it, Sam. Even last night, I, I thought about taking another picture for you. This isn't from last night, but Sam literally just can't get enough. You know what Sam's demonstrating is the spiritual principle Boy, once you taste and see that the Lord is good, what do you long for? I want to know Christ. My heart sings for Christ. My hunger is for Christ. My desire is for Christ. That's the kind of spiritual inclinations that Paul is trying to teach us to have. Would you just bow your head and close your eyes and whisper these words as you do? I hope they're true. Would you just say, I want to know Christ? Would you just say it again, I want to know Christ? If you're here and that means trusting Christ unto salvation, some of our pastors will be here at the front and can help you with that either now or after the service is over. If you're a follower of Jesus and there's special things related to that, that the Spirit of God has been working, that the Word of God has been farming in your life, we'll let the Spirit of God work that as you come and talk with our pastors here. But I pray for all of us that our heart would sing, I want to know Christ. God, use these moments to echo that refrain into our hearts so that it is never lost and becomes like Paul, the refrain of our life, I want to know Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. And the church said, Amen.